At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Y'all, please be seated and good morning. Unless the Son of Man be lifted up, Jesus says. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. I will never forget when I first saw it. I'll never forget it. It was probably about mm, nine months ago now. I looked at my phone. I received a text message from someone at St. George's. And I looked at my phone and I saw this image that sent a jolt of electricity through my body. The image was of a sign affixed to the top of a pole. Apparently, I slowly began to realize this sign and this pole were indeed planted in the grounds of St. George's Episcopal Church. And guess what was at the top of that pole? A big, fiery red dragon. And immediately, a jolt of electricity did, in fact, go through my body because, I mean, how cool is that? I mean, who is not immediately enthralled by the sight of a fiery red dragon. I mean, it's unbelievably cool. But on the other hand, it was a little bit disturbing. It was a little bit disturbing to me. I mean, because aren't dragons the bad guys? I mean, aren't dragons supposed to be evil creatures? This sign. What in the world was it supposed to mean? And what in the world is it supposed to mean? How should we understand that sign? One interpretation that I still like, I've bounced it off a few people. One interpretation I still like is that that sign slash shield, and indeed our church logo, that sign slash shield is kind of like a medieval coat of arms. It's kind of like a medieval banner or a medieval coat of arms. Often, the coat of arms of a medieval family uh, will display a ferocious beast, for example, a lion or a bear. Why that lion or that bear on that that, uh, coat of arms? Usually, it's because of a memory. Usually, it's because of a memory, a legend, a myth, a story about how that family was confronted by such a ferocious enemy, but then courageously defeated the beast. As a testimony to that victory, 
They put the beast on their shield. They display that beast on their coat of arms. That's one way of thinking about that sign, it seems to me, or indeed about our church logo. It is our family coat of arms. That dragon reminds us of the victory of St. George, our patron saint. He's in our family. We are in his family. That uh, image reminds us of the victory of St. George, who triumphed over that dragon, even if his triumph was not by means of a lance or a spear, but rather by love. Now, dear friends, today on this second Sunday in Lent, we come to John chapter 3, this story of Nicodemus. And it is a riveting, complex, interesting story in so many ways, this conversation that takes place at night between Jesus and Nicodemus. It, there's a lot there, but... There's one thing I want to draw your attention to this morning. One thing I want us to focus on today, and it is related to that dragon on our church shield. Jesus looks at Nicodemus in verse 14 of John 3, and he says, Just as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, so also the Son of Man must be lifted up. Just as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness, sorry, just as the serpent was lifted up by Moses in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, last Sunday, Lent 1, we encountered a serpent-slash-dragon. Uh, it was the serpent-slash-dragon that we met in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, the serpent-slash-dragon who tempted that first couple, that first man and woman, in the garden, that same character last Sunday showed up again. That same character, that serpent slash dragon, we read about it in the Old Testament lesson, yes, Genesis 3, but then it showed up again in the gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 4, once again tempting Adam. But this time in the gospel, Matthew chapter 4, the one being tempted was not the first Adam, Romans chapter 5, it wasn't the first Adam, but rather it was the second Adam, Jesus. And where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. So you see, when we come to the gospel stories of the New Testament, the, the one being tempted has changed. The temptee is different, but the tempter, the tempter is one and the same, that serpent slash dragon that we encounter at the very beginning of our story, uh, the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. I hope I'm making sense this morning. The book of Genesis, the book of Matthew, it is the same serpent slash dragon in both cases. Side note, some of y'all might be wondering, why in the heck does Father Matt keep saying serpent slash dragon? That's kind of weird. Well, there's a couple of reasons why. First off, in mythology, in most mythologies, serpents and dragons are actually associated, which is why that dragon in the Lord of the Rings, Smaug, remember him? He has scales. He has scales. You see, both dragons and serpents are reptilian creatures who have scales, so that's one reason. But there's another reason, and it's actually a better reason, and it has to do with the Bible itself, because the Bible itself makes this connection between serpents on the one hand and dragons on the other. Revelation 12, 9 and Revelation 20, verse 2, they both speak of, quote, the dragon, that ancient serpent, the devil, the devil. Wow. Terrifying. 
in the story of our Bible, this dastardly creature, this serpent slash dragon, he is our great enemy. Which is why it is so strange what happens in Numbers 21. Numbers 21, yeah, Numbers 21. That is the story that Jesus is alluding to this morning. Numbers 21 is the story that Jesus alludes to this morning when he speaks of that serpent being lifted up by Moses in the wilderness. In that story, Numbers 21, we hear a lot about serpents. Here's what's going on in that story. The Lord has rescued the children of Israel out of Egypt, and now they've been wandering through the desert, through the wilderness for some time now. During that whole time, though, guess what? God was so gracious and merciful that he gave them an abundant supply of manna, an abundant supply of quail, an abundant supply of fresh water to drink. But the people, mm, not so much, God. They're starting to get tired of that diet, and they are beginning to complain. And as they grumble to Moses and beg for him to take them back into Egypt, to take them back into slavery, as they grumble against Moses, they're punished by a brood of snakes. Poisonous, or the Hebrew actually says fiery. There's some weird uh, ambiguity there. They are punished by a brood of poisonous or fiery snakes. This manna and this quail is not good enough. We demand better, they say to the Lord. And they are punished by a brood of snakes. What happens next in the story is that the Lord brings healing. The Lord finally brings healing to the people, but he does so in a very strange way. The Lord, because that's, that's what this character is called in the story, the Lord, doesn't say God, it says the Lord. The Lord tells Moses to make a bronze statue of a serpent, to make a bronze statue of a snake and attach it to the top of a pole. Side note, have you ever heard of the rod of Asclepius? We, we have a lot of nurses in our church, and if you're one of the nurses, you probably are familiar with the rod of Asclepius. Uh, it is used by various medical organizations as their official symbol or logo, including, by the way, the WHO, the World Health Organization. I'm sure that you've seen it. It's a vertical rod that has a snake wrapped around the top of the pole. One survey found that 62% of professional healthcare associations in the US use the rod of Asclepius as their symbol. Many scholars think that the origin of that symbol, the rod of Asclepius, is right here in Numbers 21. So yeah, the Lord tells Moses to make a bronze serpent and attach it to the top of a pole, and Moses does that. And when the people would look at this bronze serpent, they would become immune to the poisonous snake bite and they will be healed. They would be healed. Now, do you see how strange that is? I mean, just at the level of a story, right? Do you see how strange that is? I would actually like for us this morning to sit with that strangeness. In the Bible, snakes are the bad guys. 
We've talked about how in stories there's protagonists, antagonists, and in the Bible, serpents are the bad guys. So, so crazy. Snakes are the enemy. Serpents are out to destroy us. And yet, here's the Lord. And what's he doing? He's telling Moses to make an image of that, to take an image of that, a serpent. And that becomes the Lord's chosen means to bring healing to his people. That enemy becomes the Lord's medium to heal his people and to bring about his purposes. Hmm. So weird. What in the world is going on? Two things, I think. Wonderful. Two things, I think. The first has to do, actually, with my sermon from last Sunday. You might remember. Uh, we spoke about how Lent is a time of telling the truth. Lent is a time for telling the truth about yourself. How do you really feel about things? How do you really feel about babies crying in the nave? I can tell you, I love it. I love it. But you see, Lent is about telling the truth. How do you feel? Lent is a time about coming clean, telling the truth about yourself. This is all last Sunday, right? The good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful. Well, this snake in Numbers 21, this snake is a reminder to the children of Israel, not about the beautiful, but about the ugly. It's a reminder to them not about the good, but about the bad. How ugly? How bad? About as ugly and bad as a serpent at the top of a pole. About as ugly slash bad as the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, that serpent slash dragon who attacked God's children in the Garden of Eden. That serpent at the top of Moses' pole, it is a reminder to the Israelites of their sin. Kind of like the great litany to us last Sunday on the first Sunday of Lent was a reminder to us of our sin. Do you remember Adam's sin from last Sunday? Unlike the first Adam in the desert, sorry, unlike the second Adam, in the first Adam, in the case of the first Adam, he demanded what? He demanded control. The first Adam in the garden refused to wait. It occurs to me that a church that is fine not being in control, it, it occurs to me that a church that's willing to give up control is going to be the kind of church that's utterly comfortable with all sorts of things going on in the nave. Amen? But the first Adam grasped. The first Adam in that garden, uh, at the mercy of the serpent, the tempter grabbed and demanded and had to be in control. The first Adam in the garden refused to wait. The Lord had always intended to give, to give all good things to his children. The Lord had always intended to give the fruit of that tree, the one he said, don't eat, don't eat of that one. The Lord was always going to give that fruit to Adam. But Adam was supposed to be patient. The first human beings were supposed to wait. They were supposed to trust and to depend on the Lord. But in the garden, they said, nope, 
We're going to take matters into our own hands. We're going to opt for the shortcut. We're, gonna we're going to insist on our own timetable. Not thy will be done, our first parents were saying in the garden. Not thy will be done, but my will be done. Question, what's going on in Numbers 21 with the children of Israel in the wilderness? The exact same thing. The exact same thing. They are literally repeating the sin of Adam. They are refusing to wait upon the Lord. They're insisting on control, on taking matters into their own hands. So what does the Lord do? What does the Lord do? He reminds them of their sin. He's trying to get them to admit it. He's putting a picture right in front of them, a picture of a serpent right in front of them vividly to remind them of their own sin, to get them to admit it, to acknowledge it, to come clean. And as they gaze upon that serpent at the top of Moses' pole, they realize, oh, wow, we're doing the same thing that Adam did. And once they realize that, once they admit that, once they come clean, guess what? They are healed. Once they come clean and tell the truth about themselves, they're healed. So why a snake? So weird, Numbers chapter 21. Why a snake? Why a serpent? Why this reminder of the serpent slash dragon? That's why. It's a pointer to the past. The past experience in the garden with the serpent slash dragon. They are reminded of who they are, sinners by nature. They acknowledge their truth and they are healed. But that serpent slash dragon at the top of Moses' pole, guess what? It's not just a reminder about the past. It doesn't simply point to the past. For them, it also pointed forward. It pointed to the future, the future of the cross. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent, Jesus says, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The serpent pole of Moses, it points forward to Christ. It points forward to the cross. In Numbers 21, think about this with me. In Numbers chapter 21, the Lord uses a serpent to defeat a serpent. But on the cross, he uses death to defeat death. As our burial liturgy, borrowing from the Eastern Orthodox Church, says, when we bury people, we say this, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by Death, trampling down death by death. In Numbers 21, the Lord uses a serpent to defeat a serpent, but on the cross, he uses death to defeat death. In each case, the threat becomes salvation. After my sermon last Sunday, I was talking to someone afterward, and we were talking about how it seems like God's playing tricks on the devil. Yeah, I think that's right. In each case, the threat becomes salvation in each case. The serpent in the wilderness, Christ on the cross, in each case, curse becomes our greatest blessing. In each case, the unthinkable happens. We have a Lord who defeats the snake through a snake. We have a Lord who defeats death through death. But... 
Actually, it gets stranger still. It gets more unthinkable still. It gets more wonderful and glorious still because, dear friends, we have a Lord. Think about this, this Lenten season. We have a Lord who uses sin to defeat sin. Actually, we have a Lord who became sin. Can you imagine? He defeats our sin by becoming sin. It's all right there in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm not the one who said it. It's all right there in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So, dear friends, on this second Sunday of Lent, we're almost halfway through. Let us look at that serpent and be healed. May we look and gaze upon that serpent and be saved. May we behold the one dangling on the pole, not the pole of Moses, but the pole of the cross. May we gaze upon him and be healed. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Whoever looks and believes on him will have eternal life. In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.